History is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. The headline today on Bill McLive. Actually, I pushed it, it just didn't work. Anyway, it's working now. Headline at BillMc.com is, You Sunk My Battleship. That's where we're going to live in this hour of the program. Actually, we're going to go well beyond that with Dave Bowman and Dave Does History. Dave, thanks again for spending the whole day with us here. And now we're to the hour that you're really here for, which is... A look at history unlike you get anywhere else. Our hour being brought to you by the McPherson Financial Group. So what are we focused on, Dave? So we're going to take, in order to tell this story, Bill, we got to go back to one of the darkest days in American history. Now, it was actually a very sunny day, but historically it was a very dark day for our history. And that was, of course, December 7th, 1941. Everybody knows what happened that day. What you may not know is that in the harbor at Pearl Harbor that morning were eight United States battleships. Now, this was still the era when battleships were the defining characteristic of a Navy. How many battleships do you have? The more battleships you have, the more powerful your Navy is. The battleships were the capital ships that were limited by the Washington Navy Treaty. They were limited in tonnage and size and those sorts of things. But the number that you had were were the defining characteristics. There were eight of them in Pearl Harbor that morning. And the reason that they were there that morning was because they were, and I, I got to be careful what term I use here, they were not obsolete, but they were, by this point, it was recognized that the aircraft carrier had much more versatility than the battleship did. And these eight battleships were too slow to keep up with the aircraft carriers, which were out at sea that morning doing things that we don't really have time to talk about today, but were involved with getting ready for the attack that we knew was coming from Japan somewhere. We just didn't know where. Now, these eight battleships that were there, two of them that morning would be declared total losses. They were sunk. They were destroyed. USS Arizona, of course, and USS Oklahoma, my name, home name state. Mm-hmm. Among the other five, among the other six battleships, USS Maryland, USS Tennessee, USS Pennsylvania would be damaged, but not put out of action per se. The rest, USS Nevada was beached, uh, almost sunk. USS California was sunk, and of course, the big one that everybody talks about was the USS Bill West Virginia. Yes. Which was actually sunk that morning. She took somewhere between 9 and 12 torpedo hits. Nobody's absolutely sure. And being parked directly aft of USS Oklahoma, Oklahoma never had time to recover. She just rolled over and sank. West Virginia was was counter-flooded, and so she sank on an even keel, settled to the bottom of Pearl Harbor, which is very shallow, by the way, if you've ever been to Pearl Harbor. Even a, yes. even a sunken ship, the deck is just right at at water level. I mean, it's it's not a very deep harbor. It was always fun for us to navigate through there when we were going through there. 
West Virginia would be sunk, but of all the ships there, of the of the eight battleships, she was actually the newest and had the best equipment, which meant that when they looked around, they said, hmm, maybe we should just not let her sit there like we're going to have to do with these others. And we pick the story up in just a minute on WMMB. Dave Bowman with us with Dave Does History. So they're going to refit the, the West Virginia, resurrect and refit, and five others, Dave. When, when these battleships were sunk and or damaged, whatever, it was, it was quite a fight. And people, I, I don't think people really understand how much of a fight they put up in Pearl Harbor that day. West Virginia kind of led the way. She was one of the, she was the newest of the eight battleships. And she was equipped with some different kind of fire control that enabled her anti-aircraft fire to make the second wave of the Japanese attack very costly to them, along with some of the other ships. When she was hit by those nine torpedoes, though, her her captain had been killed. He was mortally wounded by shrapnel and bomb hits from some of the other ships. But he managed to get that ship to sink, like I said, on a on an even keel. But because they had sealed up some things and you know, kind of uh, did what they had to do to, to counter flutter and make her sit on an even keel. There was some some tragedies here, and I don't want to skip by these. Many men were trapped below decks on West Virginia. She was; uh, they were unable to get these men out, even though they were, for the moment, safe. When they would raise West Virginia months later. They actually found three of these guys in one room who had survived for 16 days in that room after the attack. They had actually marked on the wall the days that had passed by. They survived for 16 days with no chance whatsoever of rescue. By the time they raised West Virginia back up. Gosh, how horrible would that have been to go through, Dave? There is a book out by uh, Admiral Ellsworth about salvaging the ships at Pearl Harbor. And that is one of the hardest things to read about is that when, and it wasn't just West Virginia, it was Oklahoma, Arizona, California, all these ships. This, this story just repeats over and over again where men were trapped below decks and they had no chance of getting out whatsoever. Even when the Oklahoma rolled over, you think to yourself, well, why couldn't they just cut holes in the, in the bottom of the ship? Well, once you cut those holes, you, you essentially break the air pockets. Water rushes in and drowns them. There's yeah. literally no way to get them out. And so they just died. And these men were found months later when these ships were finally raised. West Virginia gets raised. She gets sent back to the west coast of the United States where here in Bremerton, they basically rebuild her. They put her, with the exception of her speed, which there's little, there's almost nothing they can do about it. I mean, you know, you have certain kinds of engines and you have a certain kind of hull shape. There's not a lot you can do with that. Um, she had been converted from coal to oil along the way back in the 30s. The, the the screws were what they were. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot you could do about the speed. But everything else was brought up to what we would call modern battleship standards. So her fire control system was updated. Her ship's control systems were updated. If you were to see her after the attack on Pearl Harbor, you might mistake her for a modern battleship. I mean, she looks brand new. And 
this, of course, applies to all of these ships. I mean, they did this to West Virginia. They did it to Nevada, Tennessee, uh, Maryland. They made all the, they brought all these ships back up and they made them, California, they brought them all back up to, to modern standards. Well, of course, they're still very slow, Bill, and this is the thing to keep in mind. These ships, they have a top speed, I mean top speed, downhill with a tailwind of about 24 knots. They just are not very fast. But they are very powerful, which makes them very useful for things like shore bombardments, you know, making sure that the Marines have big 16-inch guns, which Marines love. Marines love having big guns cover them when they're on the beaches. They just think that's the greatest thing in the world. In fact, Nevada will actually go from Pearl Harbor to D-Day, where she will just absolutely terrorize the Germans at Normandy. They, they, there are legendary stories about Nevada's gunfire at, at D-Day and even into the, uh, the campaign to take Cherbourg that, that A, it was so accurate, and B, it was so devastating and her guns weren't even as big as West Virginia's. Hmm. West Virginia, 16-inch guns, uh, she gets used a lot in, the, in, in going through the campaign as we, we make our way back across the Pacific Ocean. But they're never really used in direct combat. At, bad, at worst, they're going to face some shore batteries. Uh, Colorado actually gets hit by a couple of uh, shore batteries at one point. But they never really put them into combat because, again, they're very slow, very ponderous, but very powerful. Until comes the day, October 20th, 1944, when we finally, MacArthur finally fulfills his promise, I have returned, he says, and we land back in the Philippines, and we're going to liberate the Philippine Islands. The Japanese, of course, have to respond to this. They can't just let us land at, at Leyte Gulf and, and you know retake the Philippines. If they do, everything is lost. And so the Japanese are going to gamble everything on one huge battle off the Philippine Islands. This battle is actually going to, it's, it's called one battle, the Battle of Leyte Gulf, but it's actually going to divide into four separate battles. Those four battles are going to be legendary, and in fact, one of them is the United States Navy's finest moment. We're not going to talk about that one today, unfortunately, but it is the, the definition of American valor and American sailors in combat. But one of these battles is going to involve the West Virginia, which, by the way, has again had her fire control equipment updated and her radar updated. And this is going to prove to be one of the most devastating uses of the, of the battleships, the way they were actually designed to be used.
Dave Bowman joins us for our weekly dive into history. Pay attention, there will be a test. Nah, there won't be a test, but you will be held accountable. Bill Mick Live. Thank you, Victor Lyle. Dave is with us as we're taking a look at uh, post-Pearl Harbor World War II and those ships that were returned to service after having been sunk, what, eight of them anyway. Dave, where are we sitting now, sir? When MacArthur lands back at the Philippines, so October 20th, he marches ashore. I have returned. The camera's all filming. It's all well and good, but the Japanese can't not respond to that. They have to, they have to do something. Now, they've pretty well dug in on the Philippine Islands. This is going to be a fight there. But at sea, they send basically the entire, what's left of the entire Japanese Navy. This will be the last time that the entirety of the Japanese Navy actually sails with a, a battle plan that might actually be useful. They, in, in typical Japanese fashion, however, and this is one of the criticisms of the Japanese Admiralty, they make things really complicated. Instead of just saying, well, we're going to fight here, they divide up into four forces. Some of the forces are going to be used, their aircraft carriers, they're actually going to use as decoys, and they're going to try to lure the American fleet away from the, the beachhead there at Leyte Gulf. And then the other plan is to bring in three or two forces of battleships that are going to sail in different directions, one from the south, one from the east, and they're going to come in and just wipe out the the beachhead, and this, of course, will defend, this will destroy the American attack. Again, it's too complicated, it's too spread out, and it doesn't take into account things like American submarines who are tracking all of this going, all of this movement, and in fact have already started attacking the Japanese fleet as they move towards the Philippines. Uh, the American submarines are already picking off pieces here and there. By the time they get to the the, the, the Philippine Sea, off Leyte Gulf there on, on October 24th, they've split apart, and the the distraction, the, the decoy fleet bill, actually works. It causes Admiral Halsey to actually say to himself, oh, this is great, we're going to go get these guys. And he takes the bulk of the American fleet north to try and, and catch this fleet, which he thinks is the main Japanese fleet. It's not, but he thinks it is. It's probably the worst mistake Halsey makes, and in fact, it will cause a lot of criticism of him later on. But it does result in the absolute destruction of the Japanese carrier fleet because, you know, that's what was intended to be. There's three other fights that are going to happen here, though. One is a battle off uh, Cape Engano, which will be the final portion of this, and we end up sinking the last of the aircraft carriers that attacked Pearl Harbor in that. It's not it's not a huge fight, but it's there. There is the fight off Samar, which we, we talked about. Again, this is the Navy's finest moment, Taffy 3, uh, which Task Force 3 is, is, if you've never read about Taffy 3, T-A-F-F-Y, the number 3, you should look that up today. It is... It is the, as I said, it, it is the United States Navy's finest moment because some of this works for the Japanese and some of the battleships actually get through and they're up against literally a bunch of escort carriers and destroyers and destroyer escorts, just small, tiny ships. 
And those small, tiny ships, they fight like the devil. I mean, they they turn that attack back and literally save the American invasion at Leyte Gulf. But it's the other fight, the southern fight, that, that fascinates me because this is the fight, this is the fight where the southern force of the Japanese are coming up to join into that fight, but they are blocked by a group of United States ships under the command of Admiral Jesse Ollendorf. And guess who these ships are, Bill? Guess who these ships are that are sitting there waiting for him? The Pearl Harbor ships. The five battleships from Pearl Harbor, including West Virginia. So these Pearl Harbor, formerly sunken ships, are in the battle, and uh, what's their role, Dave? What's going on now? So they are blocking the strait. The Japanese have to come up through the Surigao Strait, and they are at the top of the strait, spread out across the top, along with some cruisers and some destroyers, and even some PT boats, that when the Japanese start coming through, the PT boats are like, hmm, look at that. And the PT boats are so fast that the big guns on the ships can't hit them. So they're rushing in and firing torpedoes and just harassing the Japanese like crazy. They don't get any hits, but they annoy the Japanese to the point where their their formations start to get a little ragged. As they get towards the center of the straits, up at the north end, now this is the middle of the night, so it is pitch black, nobody can see anything, but West Virginia has brand new radar. They've just upgraded her radar and she is watching the whole thing. She can see the whole show unfolding in front of her as if there is bright sunshine. And because of this, Admiral Oldendorf, whose, whose favorite phrase is never give a, ch- never give a sucker a chance. He's, he's, he's just determined to take these five old battleships and have some fun, I guess, in a way. He does what is known as crossing the T. Now, this is an old naval maneuver that dates back back to Nelson in the age of sail. When a ship is when the, the enemy is coming in line, you try to cross across the top of them. It's called crossing the T. You get all your guns aimed at them, and they only have a few guns aimed at you. This is the mm-hmm. perfect naval maneuver, and it's the only time that it's pulled off by the United States Navy in the Second World War. The West Virginia's radar allows her to open fire first. She's the first one to shoot. And with her very first shot, this is unheard of in battleship warfare, the very first shot, she actually hits the enemy flagship, the Amashiro. That's unheard of. She, she'll she end up firing 93 16-inch shells into the Japanese on this attack, and in doing so, just absolutely ravage the Japanese attacking fleet. They'll end up sinking one of the battleships, the other one will sink later, and, and, and West Virginia is the one that's doing most of the firing because she has the radar. Some of the other ships don't have the yeah, advanced radar. And, and knows where to put everything, yeah. Right. Some of the other ships don't have that advanced radar, so they're, they're trying to visually sight things. In fact, Mississippi will only fire one shot because she can't see anything. This is actually the last battleship versus battleship fight in history. It's the last one. And it's West Virginia's proudest and finest moment because she just absolutely rips through the Japanese Navy because of that radar, which just proves how effective technology is. It completely routes the Japanese Southern Force. They turn around and they run. And what you have here are five United States battleships that have been present at Pearl Harbor, sunk and or damaged. And what's the Klingon proverb? Revenge is a dish best served cold. 
And that it was. Very cool. We've got more to wrap this up, and we'll also take your calls at 321-768-1240. As we close the Tuesday with Dave Does History here on Bill Mick Live. And don't forget, anything you miss, you'll find in the podcast section at BillMick.com and on the Bill Mick Live iHeartRadio channel. Back with more Dave Does History in moments on WMMB. The McPherson Financial Group bringing you this hour of Dave Does History on Bill McLive. Dave Bowman with us from Silverdale, Washington. So, Dave, the uh, battleships from Pearl Harbor get their revenge. Thank you for the focus on my native land's namesake, the West Virginia. That was outstanding. Where are we sitting now as far as things in the Philippines go? Well, this whole battle, this this four-part, five-part battle known as Leyte Gulf is in many ways, it's it's the crowning glory of the United States Navy, especially the fight off Samar and Taffy 3. And maybe next year we'll do Taffy 3. We'll talk about them because that, that fight in and of itself is emblematic of, of everything that the United States Navy has ever wanted to be. Um, it's a desperate action against an overwhelming enemy, and we win. And we win even with small ships. It's, but the important thing to keep in mind here, though, is it's not without its cost. This this fight, even though it's not really a fair fight, is not without its losses. Uh, this is actually the first time the Japanese will use the kamikaze attacks. Uh, the first one they will hit will be the HMAS Australia, the cruiser Australia, which is an Australian ship. And it, it does some minor damage to, to the Australia. But the, the first time it hits U.S. ships, it actually hits an aircraft carrier called the USS Swanee. It's a, an escort carrier. 107 men will die, and the ship will sink. And, and this is a totally new tactic. We're not used to this. We're not ready for this. They also hit the USS Santee, which is also an escort carrier, another 16 killed. And this, this is indica- indicative of what we're going to face you know, going forward from here, the Philippines, Iwo Jima, Okinawa. These are going to be costly fights, but they're fights that have to be made in order to end this war because, you know, the, the Japanese started this war and we're going to have to end it. And they're not just going to lay down and go, well, we give up for reasons that we've talked about already at length. But these are these fights, these four fights in Leyte Gulf are critical to the destruction of the Japanese Navy. I mean, by the time this is done, there is no functional Japanese Navy left. There's a couple of ships, a couple of, uh, you know, aircraft, slow aircraft carriers, nothing, nothing that can join together and actually do a coordinated 
naval action. In fact, the uh, the Yamato, the giant battleship Yamato, is reduced to basically, uh, you know, doing a suicide mission off Okinawa because there's literally nothing left for it to do. the The hardest part of this whole thing, though, is getting getting adapted to or having to learn how to deal with these kamikaze attacks because this is clear that the Japanese are not going to give up here. They are not going to just roll over and surrender, and in the process of that. Many, many American and allied lives are going to be lost to a tactic that is essentially evil in a lot of ways. It's the last desperate role of, a, of an empire that's trying to, to stay alive, I guess. I, I, I've, never, I've never personally been able to get my head around the kamikaze system in the sense that, you know, here's five minutes of flight training, now go crash your plane into a ship. There's a part of me that says I, I don't can't imagine anybody that would voluntarily do that, but it speaks to their culture and the way they were they were able to convince people to do that. The fact that the Navy came through that with losses is testament to the idea that we not only adapted the use of our our technology and our tactics, but we were able to reuse ships that had been effectively destroyed like the West Virginia, that we raised off the bottom of Pearl Harbor and sent her back into the fight where she was highly successful. Let me ask you a question before we break out of here for a minute. And that is, are you aware of kamikaze-style attacks any time after this in history? Any other nations? By an organized line? nation? Yeah. Not no, necessarily. I'm talking about 9-11. Okay? Yeah, 9-11 is. And, and keep in mind, the kamikaze is a... It's a cultural thing in Japan. It's called the, the divine wind is what it means. And it comes from a time when they had a naval battle against uh, Korea, I believe it was. It might have been the Khan. Um, they were trying to invade Japan, and this, this wind came and destroyed the, uh, the enemy fleet. So it is, it is a cultural icon to them, and I get that, but... I don't think we were ready for it. We clearly weren't ready for it on October 24th, 1945, but, or 44, sorry. But, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those things that caught us off guard again, and yet we, we were able to overcome it. All right, very good. We continue, and we take your calls in 60 seconds on Bill Mick Live. The McPherson Financial Group bringing you this hour, the show 321-768-1240. If you want in with Dave Bowman, let's go to John on Merritt Island. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hello, Bill. Uh, I listen to you every day, and uh, I agree with one of the callers a few days ago. you got to go national. Well, thank you. Why would you want to punish me like that, John? Come on. Uh, (laughs) That's right. That would be a punishment. Uh, The other thing is, uh, Dave, uh, wonderful, wonderful history every week. I also look forward to uh, your your talks. But uh, if readers want to prep for uh, uh, Taffy 3, there's a a great book called The Last Stand of the Tin Can Soldiers by J.D. Hornfisher. And uh, another book, which is historical fiction, however excellent, uh, about the same battle uh, called Pacific Glory by uh, P.T. Duterman. And uh, so I'd just like to throw that out. If, uh, Dave's going to talk about, uh, the, I believe it's the Sergio Animal Strait battle. Uh, 
Tappy three. Yeah, he is going to so, do that. Not maybe not today, but certain maybe next year when we hit this date, it rolls around. We'll come back to that. But John, I see Dave on the video shaking his head as you mentioned these books. I'll let you go, and we'll get Dave's uh, response. Dave, yeah, go ahead. The book, uh, the book by Hornfisher, Last Stand of the Ten Can Sailors, is. I think it should be required reading for for all Americans. It should be, and and this is the fight off Samar, is. It's just an incredible thing. If you ever go to San Diego and you find yourself at the USS Midway Museum, you want to walk around the side of the ship where the big statue, there's a big statue there of the sailor kissing the nurse in New York City on VJ Day, or VE Day, I don't remember which one it is, but it's a huge statue. You can't miss it. But underneath that, to the right of it, is the Taffy Three Memorial, and you know, for most people, it's just a quick walk through things. I think for, for United States Navy sailors, that is holy ground. I mean, I, I can't emphasize this to you enough about this fight at Taffy 3, which is not the fight we talked about today at Surgao, but that is literally your Navy's absolute finest moment. All right, very good. Let's get back to the phones. We check in line two. You're on Bill McLeod. Good morning. Hey, boys. How are we doing? We're good, Lou. Uh, I posted your story for you this morning, just so you know. Are you wearing your Swifty shirt today? <laughs> yes, I am. Anyway, what's on your mind here? So now um, it's interesting that this conversation about the Philippines, because isn't the Philippines back in the news this week? I don't know. I don't know Dave. For what? Um, there's something going on with different military actions, and we're going over there to help. Make sure things don't happen. I don't know if they've been have any information on that or what's going on over there nowadays. Dave, anything on current Philippine well, action? According to the Associated Press, we did warn the Chinese. The Chinese have been pushing the Philippines for a long time about, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the islands that, that surround the Philippines. I'm trying to remember. I think it's like 5,000 islands that make up the Philippines. It's a ridiculous number. But some of those the Chinese claim or are trying to get. And so there is actually an old United States World War II ship that is beached on one of those islands to defend it from the Chinese. It's it's a fascinating story. Anyway, we did uh, we did warn them again that we will defend the Philippines if they keep messing with the uh, keep messing with the Philippines. And there was a a collision. I think I saw Philippine and Chinese vessels collided sometime in the last couple of days which you know a collision at sea is is a is an international incident in most cases right. like that especially between warships so i haven't seen the details on it don't know who was at fault don't know what they did but but at the same time there is a lot of tension between china you know we think of china and taiwan but china really is trying to achieve hegemony over the entire region which is exactly what the japanese were trying to do back in the 1940s so the philippines are are a linchpin in that all right, very good. Lou, thanks for the uh, for the question. Good to have you along. We don't often, and that's why I'm glad you're here on these Tuesdays, Dave, we don't often get a dive into history like we do here with you, and I really appreciate it, and it's a look that I don't think you're going to get, you're going to see in classrooms around the country. Well, I hope I will. Who knows? I mean, this is this is something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I believe in. Firmly, but I also believe 
and and I was a little disappointed by some of the comments that I got on Facebook about this. But look, I know that if you don't use it for something, it's worthless. That that's a basic Hasidic teaching in Judaism is you you learn something, it has to change you. You have to use it for something. I look at history and talking about history as planting trees I'm never going to climb. If if I can get someone out there to go, hey, maybe I should learn more about that. Maybe I should tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends. And we get the lessons of those things, as we talked about last hour in the Titler cycle. What, you know, Where are we? What are we doing? This finest moment of the Navy. You know, hopefully the lesson we learned from that is we shouldn't be fighting wars for stupid reasons. And well, as far as you're going back to school, it won't, it, it can't help but change you. And then every interaction you have with anybody else from that point forward is going to be enhanced by what you picked up by doing that. I hope so. That's the goal. I, That's the goal. Because if I'm just well, going to hang a piece of paper on my wall, I can do that for 13 bucks. I can get one of those. Yeah. The, the, but it has to change you. And what I say, if you're listening to me, it has to change you. If it's not affecting you, if it's not changing you in some way, shape, or form, what you think, what you do, then I have failed. But if it does, then I have succeeded. And we succeed every Tuesday here on Bill McLive. And Dave has been gracious these last few weeks, hopefully for the foreseeable future. Join us for the whole show on these Tuesdays because we have a lot of fun together doing this. And hopefully you're enjoying it, enjoying it as much as we are. Thank you, Lou McPherson Financial Group. They made the hour possible. Dave, have you looked ahead to next Tuesday yet? I did, but I don't remember what it was. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't write it down. Okay. Well, that's all right. We'll figure it out next Tuesday. It's Halloween. We'll have plenty of time to figure it out. Dave Bowman, thank you, my friend. I look forward to next week. We'll see you then.